This weekend, I want to preach to you from the Word. Uh, I'm not really going to be in one spot in Scripture, I'll be honest with you. We're going to be in a couple different spots. So if you want to turn on your Bible or turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 1, that's where I will end up eventually. Uh, the goal tonight, I want to preach about the family and what family means to the heart of God and how he interacts with the family. And not just this concept or idea of, of families as a meta narrative, but, but even with families here in this room who have attended this, this worship service together, um, God has a deep, deep heart for the family. We just sang this song that, that we're all children of God. We are all one family. The idea of family, this, this thought process is, is an idea that, that is like humming in the background of the entirety of Scripture. And it may be something that we don't really think about all the time, but it's an incredibly important thing to God. He is, he is known by, by his son Jesus. Jesus' most common name for referring to God was Father. And so that's very, very important to him is that we have this familial language um, between us and between each other and the church. And so my first experience with a, like familial language in the church, so calling each other brother and sister and that kind of thing, um, was when I was a young kid. So my dad, he lives in Texas. I grew up in Texas. And um, he, he was a pastor, okay, on and off throughout my childhood. And people would come to him and call him Brother Scott. And four-year-old Eli is like, you don't know him. <laughs> I don't know who you are. He's got one brother and you're not that person. You know, I didn't understand why they were calling him Brother Scott. And so obviously I grew up to understand what exactly was going on. But being in church is using familial language, calling each other brother and sister. And that's not by accident. That's just not just a funny quip that we do. That we, It's not an inside joke, okay? Paul, when he was writing his letters, that was the most common way that he addressed the church was brothers and sisters. Okay, we've been in 2 Corinthians for a few months now. Pastor Charlie's been leading us through, and that's the most common phrase he uses to address people is brother and sister. It's because at, at our very identity, our very core, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's probably a phrase that you've heard millions of times, and you're going to hear it a few more times this evening. So that's what I'm talking about. It's the family. But God's designed all of us to be one family, united by his spirit, to reflect his image, the image of our creator. I'm going to take you to Genesis chapter 1 first, and you don't need to turn there. I'll just read it for you. Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 is going to come up for you on the screens. It says, it says, then God said, let us make man in our image and according to our likeness. I'm not going to read all of that, but that's kind of the spot that I want to hone in on here for a second. From the very beginning, God's purpose is to make man, mankind, in his own image. Now I'm going to skip over to Genesis chapter 2, verses 22 through 24 say this, and I am going to read the whole one here. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. This is why man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. And so in establishing man in his own image, God then divides the man into two. He takes from Adam's side to create Eve, and he creates them to where they would become one again. And all of that is reflecting the image of of God. And this is important because, not because many of us haven't heard that story a couple times before, but because the way we function as families, that is also the image of God. See, see, Adam and Eve being divided and coming back in together to be one. 
That is also reflecting the image of God. We have to understand that families reflect the image of like the image and likeness of God as much as the individual does. See, God himself exists in relationship, right? He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is three separate persons and all one as God. I'm not going to try to explain that this evening, probably because there are people better to explain it than that, but that is the simplest I can say is that God exists in relationship with himself. And so that's why the DNA for the rest of Scripture is people in relationship with each other. It is family at the DNA of all the writing of Scripture. See, God has decided to tell his story through families. That's my first point for you this, this weekend, is that God is telling his story through families. And he's used families since the very beginning, since page one we just talked about it, is that Adam and Eve were the first family. And they were put here with a purpose, okay? And their purpose was to multiply work the ground and subdue the earth. Multiply, meaning one of their purposes was to be a family. That was the purpose of why they were here. But it only starts there, and we, we know what happens on the next page, the next chapter over, is that Adam and Eve sin. They're tempted by the snake, and they, they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and God has to banish them from the Garden of Eden, this perfect place that he has made. But see, what's important about that is that in this moment that God is removing them from Eden. He has this conversation between them and then the snake, and he addresses all of them. But, but what's important here is that he makes a promise specifically to Eve, and he says that he promises to her that the offspring of man would strike the head of the snake. And so God's promise to Adam and Eve as he's banishing them from intimate relationship with him is that through your family, you'll strike the head of the snake. Redemption will come through your family. God has decided to tell his story through relationship, through families. And see, I don't want to spoil the story for you, but this promise is fulfilled by Jesus Christ himself. Amen to that. Jesus fulfills this promise many, many years, many, many generations later. And most of us know the stories that kind of go in between Genesis and when Jesus comes. It's the really thick part of the Bible that we don't really understand all the time. But the point of the, all of that is this, is that the entire Bible, the whole thing, is a unified story that is pointing forward to Christ or back to Christ. It just depends on where you're at in reading the book. It's all a unified story pointing back to Jesus, and that narrative is told through families. Now, if we can be honest with ourselves, whenever we're reading Scripture and we find a genealogy or a lineage, it is common practice to just skip those four or five verses Okay, this week, if you follow us in life journaling, we hit the book of Numbers, which starts with a census. It's tough to read, okay? It's tough to get through, and, and I myself, I'm, I'm not casting blame where I have no guilt. I have skipped this also, mostly because I don't know any Jehoshaphats running around, and so the culture's a little different, okay? The culture's a little different. We don't understand the names. We don't really tie them to stories, so it makes it difficult to understand why it's in there or why it's important. But see, these genealogies, these lineages, when we, when we place them together, when we understand that, that they're all part of the same story, we see that they're creating the, the setup, the backstory for why Jesus is coming and through what situation he's coming into. When we put together all of these pieces, all these genealogies and lineages, it's, it's almost like a photo mosaic. It's like all these small little pieces and all these small little images have been put together to create one larger narrative and image. 
And we all have a place in that. Each one of our families has a piece of it. We're all part of the photo mosaic that becomes God's family, right? All reflecting the image of God who created us. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 1. I knew I was going to make it someday. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. I'm going to read this for you real quick. This is the historical record of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. From Abraham to David. Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac fathered Jacob. Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Aram. Aram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nation. Nation fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab. Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered King David. Then David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. And we're going to stop there for a second, and let's pray that I hit some of those names, because I'm a little shady on whether or not I made most of those, but I want, to, I want to tie some missing pieces to you. See, we see these names, and some of them have their stories told through Genesis and, and Exodus and, and through these places. Some of them are mentioned and talked about. Some of them are not. They, they don't really have a story that's told. But, but what we sometimes do is we, we talk about these stories and we tell these stories without fitting them together, without talking about them as like an overarching piece. And so we don't think of Abraham as being directly related to Noah. We don't think of Abraham being within a few generations of a flood that destroyed the entire earth. Definitely for me, when I was a kid, you know, I would go to Sunday school and, and we'd, one day it would be Noah's Ark and then we'd talk about Jonah and then we'd talk about this or that. And we kind of jumped around between the stories and I never understood that, that this is all happening to one family. I guess Jonah isn't really in that. That was just an example. But, but all of this is happening to one family. One family. It's all linked together. We don't always recognize about these stories, but they do. Um, and what's strange about it is this, is that, so this, this line that we just talked about in Matthew chapter one, this is God's chosen people, right? So, so he chose Abraham, Abraham responded in faith, became the chosen family that God was going to use to bless the earth. Now we're going to get there in just a moment, but for a second here, let's explore this because God's chosen family isn't always really the example of what a good family would do. They're not really the shining example of how we should treat our families in the Bible. Okay, one of these, one of these in here, one of the people in here, let's see, it's uh, Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Okay, I don't have time to tell the full story here, but Tamar is actually his daughter-in-law. Not the greatest family tree that I can think of. It's more like a family tumbleweed sometimes, but the point is this, is that this family isn't always the shining example of what we're supposed to be. But that's okay because God uses broken families and broken people to still make good on his promises. There's this story in Genesis 12, Abraham. It's like the second thing we learn about Abraham. First, we learn that he'll believe God and have faith in God. And then the next story is not great. He goes to Egypt, okay, and he's with the Pharaoh. There's, there's like a famine in his, in his old land. And so he goes to Egypt and he tells his wife, whose name is Sarah, uh, she's a beautiful woman, and he says, we're going to tell them that you're my sister instead so that no one kills me to get to you, okay? And uh, his plan works. I guess the lie works. And so Pharaoh takes Sarah into his household, and Pharaoh begins experiencing all these terrible things. There are plagues that come down on Egypt as a result of Abraham's lie. And so for some reason, even though Abraham is the one lying and messing up and sinning, God is still punishing Pharaoh for this. 
Now, this is an uncomfortable situation for us reading this text because we're like, well, that doesn't exactly seem right. But the fact is, God is not about people. He is about his promises. So he chose Abraham. Abraham had faith. God made promises to him. He's going to follow his promises more than he's going to honor people. That's the point. That's why God can use broken people, broken families, to still bring salvation to the people who would call on his name. All of this is, is one family line that is broken and made up of people who are, if we're honest with ourselves, very similar to us. Very similar. And yet God can still redeem those things to bring about a family that would bring Jesus into this world. And that's the beautiful thing about the family of God is that God's family can't be ruined by us or by broken people because it's built on God's promises. And that's my second point this week is that God's family is built on promises. That's why he can use people like us. You see, if it was up to us, Genesis 1 through 6 kind of tells that story. We would fall into chaos, into a bunch of really, really bad things, and he would have to wipe the earth away. I'm glad he has decided not to do that again. He promised us that he wouldn't do that with the waters again, and, and that's the story of Noah and the flood. But anyways, I'm totally running a tangent here. Uh, In order to work with God's people, so he has these chosen people, but he knows they're sinners, they've messed up, and and they've not made great choices with their families, okay? In order for this all to work, God needs to make agreements with his people, okay? He needs to make promises to them that he can follow up. These agreements are called covenants, okay? And so a covenant is, is a promise, and it's similar to a contract. The best example that I would have for it in today's day and age is, is marriage. So marriage is a covenant. It is a promise between two people, okay? And so these covenants that God makes, they're, they're, they're all based on his strength and on his promises, and then on the faithfulness and obedience of the people, okay? That's all they have to offer. God's really pulling the weight here in these covenants, um, and we could study covenants for the next 12 years uh, because it, it shows so much about, how, uh, about who God is and how he interacts with people and with the family. But I, I promise you I'll keep it, I'll keep it pretty simple because the, that's not really the point of what I'm trying to get at today. I, what I want you to see is, is that covenants are the way that God interacts with the family. Okay? That's, these are the promises that he gives, not just to nations as a whole, like the Israelite nation, but to those of us who believe in the room today, the covenants are for us also. Some of them are. We're going to get there. But the first covenant that I want to talk about this evening is, is the Abrahamic covenant. Now, we've talked about Abraham a little bit up to this point, um, but the Abrahamic covenant is important, um, and it's made with, as you can guess, Abraham. Uh, God promises Abraham a few things as a result of his faithfulness to follow God. Um, The three promises are this, uh, that God would make Abraham into a great nation, a great big family, okay? He promised him land, which is modern-day Israel, okay? And then thirdly, he promised him that he would bless all nations through him, okay? That one is very important for us today because I don't have any direct ties to Abraham, and I'm not sure about anybody out there, but but I'm going to need the blessing of all nations if we're going to be included in this Uh, But this covenant is part of the setup for the rest of Scripture. And that's why we see here in Matthew chapter 1 that that we're going to take it from Abraham to David. The point is that we're chasing genealogy and lineage, but also faith being passed down. 
So then after this covenant with Abraham, there's a few hundred years and a few generations um, that, that know the Lord. And then uh, what happens is people are enslaved in the land of Egypt. Many of us have heard this story is that, is that God sends plagues down on Egypt and then eventually rescues his people, takes them out of bondage, out of slavery in Egypt. And it's after this happens that God makes another covenant with the people. And this is called the Mosaic Covenant. Okay, it's the law. Okay, and, it, and it's what we would understand as the Ten Commandments and those things. That's the next agreement that God makes with the people. And the whole point of it is that um, he would dwell with the people. Okay, that he would dwell with them and they would be holy because he is holy. That's the point of the law. Now, they obviously fell short of it. Uh, then they roamed around in the desert for some time okay, before they entered into the promised land. Okay. And, and what happens there is, is they meet some opposition, okay? And they would go through the time of, like, the judges, okay? And the judges are kind of leading the people, and they kind of fall back and forth between their faith with God um, for many, many years. And, and through this struggle, what it leads to is the people crying out for a king, okay? They said, we want to be like the foreigners and the neighbors that we have. God, we don't want you to be our king. We want somebody who's here and a person, okay, to come and to lead us. And so God is like, okay, I will give you over to that. And he and the first king is Saul, and he's very disobedient to God, and he is rejected by God. Um, and then we get to King David, okay? And King David was a man who's described as uh, after God's own heart, okay? God has high praise for this man, even though he has made some great mistakes, okay? And, and um, we'll get to there in just a second. I keep getting just a little bit ahead of myself. We'll get there, Eli. It's okay. King David is a good man and a great king, who has made some mistakes, okay? He is one of God's chosen, enough that God makes a covenant with him. That doesn't make David perfect. That just means that God has chosen him. There's a covenant that God makes with him in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Um, and, ba and basically, the scripture says this, that God says to David that, that his throne would be established for forever, that a royal line would be from his family, okay? And this is kind of a tie that's connecting onto uh, the promise that, from, that he gave to Abraham about blessing all nations through Abraham's seed. Okay, David is in the same family as Abraham, and we're going to continue chasing that genealogy all the way down to Jesus. But in order to get there, we go through some really rough times for Israel. Okay, so after David and after Solomon, his son, another king that, that continued to have the nation of Israel kind of intact, um, a lot of rebellion happens after that, and there's a splitting of the people, and there's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, and, and there's really just destruction from here on out because the people really turn their back on these covenants and on God, on these promises that he's made. And so Israel remains unfaithful, but the, but the point is, is that God remains faithful to his covenant promises. Okay, he remains faithful even when the people have turned their back on him and followed other gods, followed false gods, and, and given themselves over to, to sin in their life. Um, but there, there are still prophets in the day at this time. And there's one in particular named Jeremiah who was a prophet to the southern kingdom, which was the kingdom of Judah after the people had split. Uh, and, and Jeremiah records something that God is proclaiming to Israel, and he records the new covenant, okay? And, and the new covenant is something that is that for Jeremiah, he didn't get to see, what he got to prophesy for. And so in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 33 through 34, I want to just read them real quick for you. It says this, this is the covenant that I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their mind and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God and they will be my people. 
No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. You see, obviously, like I said, Jeremiah doesn't get to see the end of this covenant happening because God hasn't given it to them yet. Jesus Christ himself is going to be the person who fulfills this promise. And see, Jesus is so important, obviously, for pretty obvious reasons. I mean, he died for our sins and those types of things. We know these things about Jesus, but, but when we tie it back to the idea of family, Jesus is this person that, that where the covenants, the promises of God, and the family, his chosen family, they, they become one. Okay, so Jesus, who is the word made flesh, he is the covenant, he is the fulfillment of the covenants and the law that God has made with the people, and he is also from the line of Abraham. Okay, he is the unification of those two things that we see throughout the Old Testament and in Scripture. And in Luke chapter 22, verse 20, this is when Jesus um, tells the disciples what's going to happen as a result of the new covenant. Okay? And, and so this is the, the Last Supper that he's sitting there with his disciples, and it says this. In the same way, Jesus also took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant established by my blood and it is shed for you. And there may not be a more important few words in the Bible that it is shed for you, for you and for your family. Jesus Christ is creating this, this new covenant. He is fulfilling the promise of God from Abraham and David that, that God would, through Abraham's family, bless all the nations of the earth and that he would establish a kingdom that is eternal from David's line. Jesus becomes both of those things. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15, it says it this way, and it's speaking of Jesus in this passage. It says, Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called might receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. I'll pause right there. Inheritance, the idea of an inheritance, that is familial language. Who gets the inheritance? The firstborn, the children. The children take the inheritance from the parents. I'll read the rest of the verse. Because a death has taken place for redemption from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Christ himself, like I said, is the covenant by which all families can be unified in the promises of God that began with Abraham and his family. And this is, this is what's important because that's where we all get to come in. That's where one blessing through one family comes to all of the nations. Because of what Jesus has done, God's family is about allegiance to him and nothing else. Paul describes it this way in Galatians chapter 3, verses 27 through 29. He says, For those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Jesus, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. According to the promise of God. So those of us who belong to Christ and believe in him, we become a part of Abraham's family. And it's not about lineage. It's not about any of those things. We don't have to fit into the genealogy to become part of the promise because of who Christ was and what, who Christ was and what he has done. God's family is no longer about lineage or race or adhering to the law or affiliation with anything. It is simply about God's promise and allegiance to Jesus. And to add any other stipulation is no longer the gospel because the gospel is becoming a part of God's family. 
That's the gospel. That's the good news. It's not only that Jesus Christ has, has died for you and has paid your debt, but it means you get to take up a family, a family that is deeper than any sort of standard that we could set as people. It's not about race. It is not about lineage. Like I keep saying, it's not about genealogy. It's not about, it's not about sexual orientation. It's not about any of those things. It's not about any standard that we could place on somebody. Why? Because there's no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. All of those things take a back seat to who you are as a son or a daughter of Jesus. Loyalty to him and being a part of his family is what's most important about you. Nothing else, no other standard that we can imagine. That's because of God's promise to us that Jesus fulfills. See, for those of us in God's family, this is also the greatest thing you could possibly have in common with someone else. Because there is no longer any of these other subjective standards, this is the greatest thing you could have in common. And that's because God's family is about unity and unification. That's my last point for this weekend. God's family, being a part of that family, is an identity that becomes that comes before all things, and we should be unified by that, not divided in that, but unified in that. See, I'll have them pull up, uh, if they don't mind, I'm sorry, in the back, if you could pull up Galatians 3 one more time for me, is that we see one more time that, that God has taken away this idea of being Jew or Greek, slave or free, and, and he, Paul uses these words on purpose. I mean, he's, he's talking about social status and race and all of these things that, that are even divisive in our day. And he's saying these things no longer matter because we have something much deeper in common. And it's not that you stop being those things. It's not that we stop. I didn't choose Christ and believe in Christ and give my allegiance to him, and all of a sudden I wasn't a boy. That's not how that works. But it takes a back seat. Okay? It takes a back seat to who we are because even in our diversity, we have unity in Christ. It's not about becoming all the same. It's about becoming all unified and there's a difference there. See, we're, we're unified. I just told us a story about Abraham, a guy 3,000 plus years ago who lived in a completely different time than we do. In many ways, it's difficult to relate ourselves to him because of what he's going through, okay? I've never been to Egypt, and I've never seen plagues, and those are like for the first three things you learn about him is that he experienced those things. But I know that I'm unified with him because of the faith that I have. We follow the same God. The same God was just as interested then as he is now in using the family. And being in the family of God means this, that we have more in common, you have more in common than a 15-year-old Nigerian girl dressed in rags, living in a shanty town 7,000 miles away who has professed Christ in her life. You have more in common with her than you do with the American political party you vote with. You have more in common with her than any other Raiders fans that you might know. You have more in common with her than anybody else you know who doesn't believe in Jesus. That is the most common thing we could possibly have is unity based on who Jesus was. And that's because God's story is told through families and it's about unifying us. I'm going to read from Revelation chapter 5 verses 9 and 10. This is the image, uh, these are the visions that John saw, and they're speaking of Jesus in this passage. It says, They sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slaughtered, and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. 
You made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign on the earth. Every tribe and every tongue and every nation united as a kingdom for Jesus. That is a picture of the entirety of Scripture. We went from Genesis chapter 1 to Revelation today. And all of this matters because God has been fighting for the unity of his people since the beginning. Since the beginning, he has been fighting for unity. It's just like the story of Adam and Eve that I told how, how God took from one, he made two, and he made them to be unified once again. And the church is that story on a much larger scale now because God has taken from one. He, Abraham was one of the first seminal people of our faith. And from there, we, we spread out and there's all these nations and tribes and languages and tongues and everybody is different and we're all diverse and yet we are all being unified again, pulled together by the Holy Spirit, unified as the church, one family with a father who is a father to the fatherless and the lover of widows. Someone who takes in the marginalized and brings them in close because at the end of the day, all of us are marginalized by the way we sin. We separate ourselves. And yet God continues to call us back to family, to unify us. I want to end today by just telling you two real quick stories um, one is, is I'm, I want to tell you just a little bit about um, my testimony. And um, here's why I'm telling two stories, because the first one is really short. I can tell you my testimony pretty quick. Uh, here's why my dad was a pastor, um, and I accepted Christ when I was seven. Okay, I grew up in a very Christian household, okay, and, and I grew up with those values. There's, there's not really a time that I can remember that Christ wasn't a concept or, or Jesus was unknown in my life. And I used to think that that was really lame. That's because I've watched a lot of TV preachers tell me all the crazy things that they did and were saved from. And that's good. Praise the Lord. But that, for me, felt like my story wasn't special. But here's the thing. My story is the one that's told repeatedly throughout Scripture. It's about families passing down faith. You see, without my mother and father and their faithfulness, I don't have the faith that I have. And that doesn't mean that I didn't choose it either. That doesn't mean that they forced me to do this. I chose this, but without their example about what a family focused on the Lord is, I wouldn't know. I wouldn't know how to focus on the Lord. I wouldn't know what it's like to be a part of a loving family. The other story that I want to tell you briefly is, is um, actually my older brother's story, and I called him this week to ask if I could tell it. Uh, my older brother, his name is Colin, and... Um, we look nothing alike. I don't really have a good way of explaining what he looks like to you. Just is We look very different, okay? So if he was standing right here next to me, you probably wouldn't believe me. I told you he was my brother. He's like bald and has a really big red beard, and it's awesome, and I can't grow one. So um, you wouldn't believe me. I'm serious. If he was standing here, you wouldn't believe me. So, uh, but he's a youth pastor in Texas, okay? So him and my dad, they work together at a church. My dad's the pastor there, and he's the youth pastor. And my dad had left town for something, and so my older brother was going to preach for him. And he preached at this church about, he preached out of Galatians 5, and the end of the sermon comes, and he dismisses everybody, and this woman who's been in the congregation for 80-something years, she's been in there since she's a little girl, and uh, she comes up to him, and, and you know, pretty, pretty calm conversation, but says, there was, a, there was a revival here at this church in the 1970s, and your great-grandfather preached out of Galatians 5, 
And that's all she said to him. You know, that's, that's all the conversation really was. And, and I just wanted to talk to him about it, you know. And, and he had made this comment when we were on the phone. And he said, you know, the conversation wasn't really that big of a deal. Wasn't, wasn't really that, it wasn't like life-changing or anything. She just kind of mentioned it to me. And, and the fact is this, is that something so subtle as that. I, off the top of my head, don't even know what my great-grandfather's name was. I don't. But to know that he was wrestling with and struggling with the same pages that I read every day, to know that he, is pursue, he was pursuing the same God that I have a relationship with, to know that, that my older brother and that my dad are pursuing the same God that I'm pursuing, that my mom and my little brother and my little sister too, not to disclude them, all of my family. There's something deeper about our relationship because we know that we have common ground beyond just being father and son. We are both the fatherless who have been taken a hold of by God. And that is God being active in the family today. He's not done telling his story. He works every day through families as a grand narrative and as a small narrative because faith is passed down through families. It's passed down. And this is why genealogies have become so, more, so much more important to me is because within the faithfulness of families to continue telling the story but participating in God's story. Without that, faith is not passed down this is the primary way that Jesus makes himself known in the world is families passing down their faith to their children. It is God's primary conduit by which he reveals himself to us is through the family. God uses families to tell his story and he is using them now. I'm going to pray for us in just a moment uh, and then I'm going to have the, uh, the prayer partners come up and we'll respond with a word of prayer. Um, and, and if you need prayer, this is, this is the time. We want to pray for you. As Pastor Charlie likes to say, we want to we add our faith to yours. And so when, when I'm done praying, we'll go into that. I'll just have you bow your heads and close your eyes. Father God, we just, uh, we're humbled by your choice. You chose us. You choose our families, God. Lord, we ask that you continue to guide us. You continue to show us how to participate in what you're doing here in Pueblo, in Colorado, in America, in the world. God, we want to participate in that. We want to be a part of that, God. We ask that you would use us, use our families to further your name, to bring you glory. Lord, we love you and we trust you. And it's in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.